Hello and welcome to podcast number 21 from SEC English. This is Julian Gurdam from the English Department of St. Columbus College in Dublin in Ireland. And this is the fourth podcast, Revising King Lear, leading up to the Leaving Certificate. This is slightly different, as we did last year with Macbeth. This is a quotation auto-test. So what's going to happen is that I'm going to quote something from the play, and then at that point you should pause your audio player. Then guess where the quotation is from, and most importantly what significance it might have, why it might be useful to you in your exam. And perhaps write down some notes, and then when you've done all that, start the recording again and listen to my comments on it. I recommend the Shakespeare Clusty search engine. There's a link to it on our blog, shakespeare.clusty.com, in which you can test yourself on other kinds of quotations. So there are 10 quotations in this auto-test, and off we go in a moment, and I'll tell you when to pause. Number one. Love's not love when it is mingled with regards that stand aloof from the entire point. So you should now pause and write your notes. Back again, the answer to love's not love when it is mingled with regards that stand aloof from the entire point is the King of France in Act 1, Scene 1. The context is a rebuke to the Duke of Burgundy, who has already suggested that he's not too keen on Cordelia if she doesn't come in a package with land and cash. Pardon me, sir, he says to Lear, election makes not up in such conditions. France, as I said in the third podcast last week, is one of the few decent characters in the play who can instinctively see the truth, though in the end none of these people can actually mitigate the tragedy. The King of France here hits on a central idea in the play. Just what is the absolute intrinsic value of something, or someone, when stripped of what Lear later calls the superflux? France knows Cordelia's worth. Lear, of course, doesn't. Until later on, he has to learn the hard way. Quotation 2. An admirable evasion of whoremaster man to lay his goatish disposition to the charge of a star. Time to pause now and write your notes. Back again. The answer to number two, an admirable evasion of whoremaster man to lay his goatish disposition to the charge of a star, is Edmund in Act 1, Scene 2. This is part of Edmund's private response, when after a quiet start in the first scene, he shows us his true nature in the second. Here he is responding to his father's foolish belief that all the trouble in the court is due to these late eclipses in the sun and moon. Edmund knows that this is the excellent foppery of the world, that when we are sick in fortune, often the surfeits of our own behaviour, we make guilty of our disasters, the sun, the moon and stars. In the word evasion, Edmund hits on that idea, that we are blind not just to others, but crucially to our own faults and inadequacies an idea that is followed through in the story of Lear himself and in Edmund's own father, who eventually says, I stumbled when I saw, and on hearing Edmund betrayed him, oh my follies, in other words, I was a fool. Quotation number three now. The art of our necessities is strange and can make vile things precious. So now pause and write your notes. 
The answer to number three, the art of our necessities is strange and can make vile things precious, is King Lear himself in Act 3, Scene 2. This is Lear talking to the fool as the two suffer outside in the storm while Kent tries to help them. This comes just ten lines after the famous statement, I am a man more sinned against than sinning. And at this halfway stage of the play, Lear is clearly beginning to realise some profound truths about human nature. At the end of the previous act, he was already feeling necessity's sharp pinch. And it was in that same scene, Act 2, Scene 4, that we heard the crucial speech, O reason not the need, our basest beggars are in the poorest things superfluous. And now Lear has been taught by necessity's sharp pinch what really matters in life. This understanding is deepened by poor Tom's arrival, when Lear sees that there are people much worse off than he. Number four now. None does offend. None, I say none. I'll able them. Pause and write your notes. Number four. None does offend. None, I say none. I'll able them. Is Lear in Act 4, Scene 6 in one of several so-called trial scenes in the play, the first being, of course, the opening love test, and including the brutal mockery of justice that is Gloucester's blinding. This quotation comes from a speech you really should know well, starting at about line 160, depending on your, on your edition in the scene. The speech starts, And the creature run from the cur, There thou mightest behold the great image of authority, a dog's obeyed in office. Quotation 4 comes about 10 lines in, when Lear, admittedly in his semi-madness, is saying that he will let off all offenders. We all sin. We all deserve mercy. The idea of justice and injustice is central to the play. Lear behaved in an unjust way at the start of the play, or an unjust way, I should have said, and now he has suffered from injustice. The greatest injustice of all, being Cordelia's death, just when they have reunited, and just when the audience might be beginning to indulge in a little hope. Quotation 5. Better service have I never done you than now bid you hold. Pause and time for notes. The answer to number 5. Better service have I never done you than now to bid you hold. Is the nameless servant in Act 3, Scene 7, warning his master Cornwall to stop torturing Gloucester in the blinding scene. At this horrifying moment, encapsulating darkness itself, one of the darkest of all drama, and I'll be discussing it in the next podcast, a nameless man risks and then gives his life to defend decency. In due course, Cornwall dies from the wounds he suffers now. What the servant says here is that true loyalty is not blind, it doesn't turn away, doesn't turn a blind eye to egregious faults. Instead, it stands up for truth and right. The play has other examples of service, of Kent's continual and self-denying loyalty to Lear, of the fool's devotion, of Edmund's devoted service to himself, of the smarmy Oswald's loyalty to his mistress Goneril, a woman who in turn is entirely disloyal to her own father. In this scene, the servant seems to be a rare flash of light. Unfortunately, as with other decent moments and good characters, his self-sacrifice is in the end futile. Though Cornwall does die, he has already done his terrible damage. 
Quotation 6. And worse I may be yet, the worst is not so long as we can say, this is the worst. Pause now to write your notes. The answer to number 6, and worse I may be yet, the worst is not so long as we can say, this is the worst, is Edgar in Act 4, Scene 1, when for the first time he sees his father blind. Just before Gloucester entered, Edgar had said, to be worst, the lowest and most dejected thing of nature stands still in esperance, in other words, hope. And then, the lamentable change is from the best, the worst returns to laughter. Typically, in the pattern of Shakespeare's vision in this play, as soon as he says that, something unimaginably worse comes into view. This is a play which examines just what depths human experience can bear, just how low people can go without cracking. At this moment, Gloucester is heading to the Dover Cliffs to die. His son is getting an education in despair, as though he must be taught by circumstances never to have hope, never to expect anything. Quotation 7. That sir which serves and seeks for gain, and follows but for form, will pack when it begins to rain, and leave thee in the storm. This is Act 2, Scene 4, The Fool. Following the speech which starts, we'll set thee to school to an ant. This is because the ant in the fable stores up food, sensibly, in the summer for the winter. The fool is telling Lear that he needs to be careful, to look after himself, and of course, another key idea in the play, to go to school, to learn. This is another quotation on the idea of service and loyalty. And now he says that Lear can only trust people who truly care for him, who do not follow for form, as plainly neither the fool nor Kent do. Before long, Lear will literally be in a storm, a storm which is also a metaphor for the chaos in his life, initiated by his own foolish act, and the growing chaos in his mind as everything he knows collapses around and inside him. The Fool says many similar things to Lear in the play. Indeed, part of the point of his role is that he says basically the same thing over and again, but is ignored or not heard by Lear. So have a few quotations from The Fool ready for your exam. Number eight. Is there any cause in nature that makes these hard hearts? Pause and write your notes. Back again. The answer to number eight, is there any cause in nature that makes these hard hearts, is King Lear in Act 3, Scene 6. And I think I could write a whole essay, maybe even a whole book on these words and their centrality in the play. However, here are some pretty brief comments. The line that leads up to the question is spoken to Edgar as poor Tom. Let them anatomize Regan, see what breeds about her heart. This is a profound philosophical question, and just the fact that he asks it shows us how far Lear has come from the first scene. It is also a profoundly personal question, of course. Is Regan, Regan as malevolent as she is because badness is built into her character, or did she learn this as she grew up? It is the old debate about nature and nurture. Cordelia, of course, grew up to be a decent adult, and she had the same father. But did Lear's preference for Cordelia make the older sisters bitter? Edmund says he is like he is for no reason. He certainly doesn't blame or point to his upbringing or his illegitimacy. 
The play confronts us with big questions like this about human nature and identity. It is a play in which we see characters, especially King Lear, in the crucible of pain and affliction, and we question what we are at heart and what has made us what we are. So just two more now. Number nine, here we go. Oh, the difference of man and man. To thee a woman's services are due. Pause and work out who it's by and write your notes about the context and importance now. The answer to number nine, of oh, the difference of man and man, to thee a woman's services are due, is Goneril in Act 4, Scene 2. Seconds after Edmund has left to rejoin Cornwall, packed off by a kiss from this married woman. Albany, her husband, is the other man she refers to, and you can listen to last week's podcast to hear about that interesting character. For his wife, Albany is just a fool. Just after she says this, he enters, in fact, a changed man, and really a man this time, calling her a changed and self-covered thing. You need to have a clear line on Goneril and Regan, and the natures of their characters. Obviously they're nasty, though perhaps their disloyalty to their father isn't entirely unacceptable, given his own behaviour. But are they really evil? This is a word which I often come across used in essays about them. However, neither is drawn with anything like the vividness of Lady Macbeth, and neither has her disturbed inner spirit. And by this point of the play, they both seem reduced to squabbling over superhunk Edmund. Do they really deserve the stature of the label, label evil? And here's the last one, number 10. So I hope you're about to get 10 out of 10. Here we go. He hates him that would upon the rack of this tough world stretch him out longer. So pause, time for notes. The answer to number 10, he hates him that would upon the rack of this tough world stretch him out longer, is Kent, a few lines after Lear's death. There could be no more appropriate metaphor for the world as experienced in this play than rack, the medieval instrument of torture. This is a brutally cruel play, full of suffering, both mental and physical, and as I said in a previous podcast on the bleakness of its vision, for much of its history it was only played in a version which changed the ending to a happy one. But it isn't happy, and it's very hard to find any consolation in its final pages. And in the final podcast of this series, I will be looking at that ending, that final scene. So you can top them up, 10 out of 10. Make sure, in any case, you know plenty of relevant quotations, and most importantly, use them effectively. I should say there's no better way to revise the play now than to get a good recording of it and listen to it. Really listen to it again and discover it afresh. There are two more revision sessions. The next one will look at the theme of blindness, and the final one will look at the last scene of the play. This is Judin Gerdham from SCC English, and you can look up more about us at www.sccenglish.ie.